Um, there are two types of people we, re we reviewed over the last few weeks. Last week we looked at the second person under review. The week before we looked at the first person. The first person was, remember, the end of Romans 1. The first person was the one who committed regularly, unashamedly, those that list of sins, not that exhaustive list of sins, that list of sins that um, we look at and we blush at a little bit. That list of sins that uh, make that person clearly pagan. And then uh, last week we discussed that second person, that uh, the, the beginning of chapter 2, that religious person. He's likely religious acting. These are likely relig religious acting people who surrounded the church of Rome. Most of those he speaks of in verse 1 through 4 have some form of godliness, but not God himself. Paul informed that religious acting person that he is also like the, like the person at the end of Romans who committed all those sins, the, the pagan, the barbarian. He is without excuse because he does the same thing as the person in chapter 1. But in a sense, the sins of the, of the religious person in chapter 2 are equal and maybe even worse. And I might not have done a good job of explaining this last week, so I want to review this very quickly. The religious person knows how to judge because he knows the law or else he would not know how to judge. And because he knows the law, even if his sins are not, quote unquote, equal in weight, they are the same. And what is worse is that that person is often not being punished for his sin. Because, as our verses uh, in chapter 2, 1 through 4, so lastly, because God in his forbearance and in his kindness is showing grace. Do you remember why he's showing that grace? Do you remember why from last week? That he might repent. That he might turn from his ways. But the religious person who has a form of godliness but does not have God necessarily does not repent because he sees God's forbearance as approval of his sin and not God withholding his wrath so that he will repent. And because he knows the law, his sins are equal to that man, that pagan who commits the list of sins at the end of chapter 1. Maybe worse because he takes advantage of the grace of God. I want us to move on today and see how God will measure both of these peoples and all people everywhere. And I want to try to answer this question. What is the objective standard that God uses for his judgment. We found out earlier in Romans that God will judge. The wrath of God will be revealed and is being revealed. And I think 5 through 10, verses 5 through 10 of Romans 2 tells us the standard that God uses to judge. Will you open your Bible if you haven't already to Romans 2? We'll read 5 through 10 today. Romans 2, 5-10. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek to glory and honor, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. We pray this morning, oh God, that you would illuminate our minds and our lives, that we may know, we may see and know and understand good and right, and that we may pursue that with a fervor and a passion like no other. That we would resist and flee from evil so that when we meet you and the measure of our life, the, the full scope of our life is counted, that you would easily and quickly say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, that our lives would be marked in a model of what it's like to live for Jesus and to grow in Him. Teach us today from your word that we may change, that we may be renewed, and that we may grow into the image of your Son. We pray and ask these things and trust in the power of the Spirit of God to give them to us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Romans 2, 5 makes it clear that the person in Romans 2, 1 through 4 is in for a rude awakening. I would say that so many believers and the vast majority of the world thinks that this world is just going to go on that we're just going to continue indefinitely. We're just going to continue infinitely. As a matter of fact, I would say the younger that you are in this room, the more likely that you are to not be able to see, not be able to think regularly, not be able to focus on the fact that, that your life is finite. There is a certain time in your life, there is a certain time in your life, and, and many of you might be out of here at this point, but especially the children here, there's a certain time in your life where you think, it, there's this feeling that life will go on for forever. And such is the life of someone who walks in ungodliness. He believes that tomorrow will be the day that he can turn. Tomorrow will be the day that he can repent. As if that tomorrow is promise. As if tomorrow is a guarantee. Even Christians, the whole this is the this is the, the life of the world. But even Christians. Knowing that the Lord return, will return, they are not going to die, but the Lord will return. We often live our lives practically as if that fact were not true. But Paul here wanted to take the opportunity to make sure that the readers understood that God's temporary withholding of his judgment did not mean that the judgment of God would not come. That God was restraining his judgment, his overall wrath on the world does not mean that his wrath will come. 
I don't want to speak on the wrath of God so much more today because we have discussed that extensively recently. But I do want us to take a few things away from Romans 2, 5 about the wrath of God as it will help set our verses up today. And it's good to know. There are two time periods spoken by Paul as he mentions the day of wrath today. The first is this, and we discussed this extensively. The day of wrath means the day that the wrath of God comes on you as punishment for your and my sin. Right? We discussed how the wrath of God is not just some future thing, but we are definitively under the wrath of God in many instances right now. And we talked about those some last week and some for several weeks, so I'm not going to get into that again. But for sure, the second instance here, the second instance of the day of wrath is God's final and definitive judgment through Jesus on all people. There will be one day where the living and the dead will be judged. Christians and non-Christians will have to give an account of their life on this earth. The Bible says two jaw-shattering statements about the judgment of God. The Bible says this, it is appointed once for man to die, and after that, judgment. Even for the most real, the most aspiring, the most Jesus-loving Christian, that should send chills down your spine. It is appointed for man once to die, and after that, judgment. And then another equally chilling statement. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We will be judged for what we have seen in Romans 1 through our, the end of chapter 1. We will, we will be judged for what we do on this earth. Why will we be judged for what we've seen? We will be judged because we reject the natural revelation of God. Those people will be judged who reject the natural revelation of God. Uh, Paul said in Romans, it can be clearly seen. God can be clearly seen. What can be clearly seen in nature, in this world. But also, we will be judged because we are in contempt For taking God's forbearance and taking God's kindness for granted. For taking advantage of God's forbearance and God's kindness. Our ignorance of God and our refusal to seek Him are both willful. And that gives us more justification for being judged. Friends, you need to know God is just in judging all of mankind. Remember what Romans 2.2 says. The judgment of God rightly falls on all who practice such things. But the question still remains. By what standard will the world be judged? And I want you to look at verse 6 for the answer to this question. Look at Romans 2 verse 6. He will render to each one what? According to his works. Now, if you came here thinking you were listening to a gospel center preacher, you shouldn't fear. I know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
But ultimately what Paul is saying has nothing to do with how we become Christians. But more to this fact, those who are in Christ are a new creation and their, their life will be modeled by good works if it is redeemed by Jesus. And those who do not follow Christ have rejected good and denied truth and will be marked by such and will receive the wrath that was put on Jesus for them, for the world, but they do not accept. But we will all be judged by our works. And it's in the Bible, so don't sue me if you don't think I'm right. The Old Testament says, right after the famous verse, Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? The Lord lays this verse down, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to, the, to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Look at Isaiah 3. Well, you don't have to look. Just listen. Isaiah 3, 10 to 11. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Well, you might sort of say, well, Bryce, um, I, I, I'm a New Testament Christian, you know? The Old Testament doesn't apply to me. Okay, if the Old Testament doesn't apply to you in that way, then that's fine. Let's go to the New Testament and see what the New Testament says. It's not fine, by the way. You're wrong. But anyway, uh, you, get, you get my point. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is coming is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 1 Corinthians 3.8 He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Melissa read for us Galatians 6 earlier, and I've quoted Romans 14, 12 about a million times. Every one of us will give an account of himself unto God. So what we find here is that every person will give an account of the life that he has lived on this earth. And that will come sometimes through the wrath for our sin on this earth. Sometimes it, it will come through wrath because sin is in the world in general. We will face wrath even if we haven't directly been the cause of that sin. But for sure, for sure, there will be a wrath. There will be a judgment for what we have done on this earth. And friends, let me warn you today, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It should be clear by now that we will all be judged by our works. Again, not life and death necessarily, although our works are key indicators as to whether we possess life in Christ or not, but at least on the basis of how we will be punished or rewarded. And it's also, clear, it's also clear in our scripture today that there are two types of people on this earth. There are only two types of people. Those who obey Christ and those who reject Christ. Those who obey Christ and those who reject His indwelling. And I want us to look at those two classes of people today. Those who seek to do good works and those who are self-seeking. And I want us to sort of 
define how each, or look at how Paul defines how each of these are marked and modeled. Look at verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So the first person you need to see today is the person who works for the right glory, honor, and immortality. There's one type of person, and I'm utterly convinced that this person is this way because of his faith in Christ alone. But this person seeks after glory and honor and immortality that is promised for those who trust in the Lord. The Bible describes that person as being patient in well-doing. This is a person who has grace under fire, who pushes towards Christ regardless of what the culture states or regardless of how uh, much pushback he gets. Now, I, some of you are going to be, some of you are going to laugh at me for mentioning this, and I think it's important. I want to make a statement on this today, okay? There is a person that comes to mind that has been in uh, sort of the media recently about his life that, that comes to mind as I think about someone who would really be patient and well doing, someone who would really need grace under fire. And yes, you might have already guessed it, it's Kanye. Okay, I know that you might be sick of hearing about this, but um, or you might not be hearing about this at all. But Kanye is this type of person, and I want to mention him in this because I want to discuss how we should respond to Kanye, Kanye in general. Okay, friends, I want you to know that everything I've read, and, and I don't want you to necessarily trust me on this. You can do your own research. Everything that I've read and I've seen. From Kanye and those around him leads me to believe that he is a regenerate believer, that he is a Christian. And as much as, as, as such, we Christians should pray for him and embrace him as we would anyone else. Just because his life, especially since his life before Christ, was much more public, we as Christians should embrace him as much as we would any other believer. And we should root for him as much as we would any other believer. Now, you may think this is a stretch. And you may think this is me just jumping on the celebrity bandwagon of someone who turns who becomes a Christian. But guys, Kanye could be, if he is a Christian, could be the modern-day Paul the Apostle. And I don't mean he's going to be writing a new New Testament. What I mean is this. Kanye, a few years ago, was a blasphemer of God, calling himself Jesus, having Christian overtones and undertones, and using vile language and, and, and vile ways to discuss that and talk about that. Kanye, just a few years ago, maybe even less, was a blasphemer of Jesus. And in that way, if Christ has taken his life, he could be in a sense, like Paul the Apostle. Just a few days ago, he released his new album. It's called Jesus is King, where Jesus was magnified in the name of the title and in many of the songs. We should root for Kanye because if he is a believer, he will need friends. And if he is a believer, he has a stage to bring some real revival in the hip-hop world and in the, the cultural, the culture in general. But either way, guys, Jesus is king is trending on social media. 
And if the gospel is proclaimed, and the gospel is being proclaimed by one of the biggest hip hop icons. So as Paul said, whether by pretense or in truth, the gospel is being proclaimed. So I will rejoice. I will say this though, Kanye is going to be a good example by the fruit he shows. And he, as much as anyone right now, will really have the opportunity to show whether or not he can be patient in doing well, as our verse says. Grace under fire. His conversion is going to cause problems with his fan base, with his friends, and even his family. He will lose much more by professing Christ in the immediate that he will gain. So the big question for everyone, not just about Kanye, but about everyone everywhere, is can we press on to the end? Remember the idea of perseverance of the saints. Only those who are in Christ will make it to the end. And all of those who are in Christ will make it to the end. And guys, here's the, here's the truth. Whether Kanye makes it to the end is it's irrelevant to the rest of your life, right? But whether we, hopefully like him, will be patient in doing well until the end isn't. It isn't irrelevant. So the big question for us today is, can we press on to the end in doing well? Can we be patient in seeking well-doing? What is the person who is patient in doing well actually seeking? The Bible lays it out. He is seeking glory. And the first thing you might be like, well, Paul, why is Paul denoting this as a good thing? He's seeking glory. You know, whenever I think of like someone seeking glory, I think of the image of like the gladiator or the, you know, the warrior, and he holds up his sword in front of his troops and he's trying to rally them. It's today we see glory. You know, something like that. That was my best William Wallace or whatever. <laughs> <coughs> so we might tend to look at this and say, well this is kind of a this is kind of a negative thing. Well if it's the wrong glory then yes, you're right. But this person who is patient and doing well is actually seeking the right glory. And the right glory is this seeking to be a vehicle for Jesus to portray the glory of God. This is the formation of a person into a new creation and therefore into an image bearer of God. And then as that person lives as an image bearer, the world will see the reflection of Christ. But friends, this glory is not only Christ in us now, but Christ in us and with us forever. This glory is also a future glory. Forever with the triune God. So the person who is patient and well-doing is doing it right because he's seeking while on this earth to be a reflection of Christ and in the next to be all surrounded by the love, the eternal love of the triune God. So he seeks the right glory. What else does he seek? This person who is patient and well-doing. He seeks honor. Again, you may think negatively of this. When I think of honor, I think of a person trying to, you know, get a job title or, or maybe a political position. But this honor here refers to being approved by God as a good workman. 
both in this life and the next, to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is the person who lives this life with little shame. Little shame, not constantly looking over his shoulder or having to erase his browser history. Not a person who constantly deletes text or pictures. Not a person who has to stop talking when other people come around. Not the type of person who has to say, I swear, because no one would believe them otherwise. But the type of person who is a model of respect and is made into the image of God. Trustworthy, a person you want to be around, a person you can look to. Only because Christ is in him and he is a reflection of that glory. This person will receive honor in this life and folks, most importantly, in the next. This person has a clear conscience and therefore a satisfied mind. So he seeks glory and he seeks honor. The honor of following Christ. And what else does he seek? He seeks immortality. This is a person with a heavenly focus. This person isn't putting all of his eggs in the earthly basket. This person who is living with this is a person who is living with one foot in the world and one foot <coughs> in glorious uh, anticipation. First Corinthians fifteen forty two speaks of this dichotomy of good works and immortality as they collide. Paul says, "So is it? So is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable." But what is raised is imperishable. He goes on in verse 54 of the same chapter. And I just wanted to read it because it is awesome. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Paul says to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he gives them eternal life. Then in verse 10, but glory and honor, and, and, and again, excuse me, these are the gifts, eternal life, and then verse 10, glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. So then what is the reward of well-doing, of the well-doing person who is established in Christ? Glory, honor, <coughs> peace. And eternal life. I want you to hear something that might be helpful in understanding the relationship between works and Christ's righteousness. And I'll probably say it twice. Good works do not always guarantee eternal life, but eternal life is always guaranteed by good works. You understand that? Good works do not always guarantee eternal life. Meaning, if you do good, Especially if you do good to find favor with God, it is not a guarantee of eternal life. But if you are in Christ, the guarantee that you are in Christ is that you are a new creation and your life is modeled by good works. So the, per the result of the person who persists in good works is eternal life. Not because of his good works, but because he has no good works apart from Christ. And Christ has made him a new creation. That person will also receive glory and honor and peace. The glorified body of the new creation and the honor of sitting at the right hand of the Father to live and reign with him forever. And here peace and eternal life, they coincide. Paul is saying that this is a peace beyond earthly life in Christ, but it extends to the next life. 
through the work of the triune God, Eden is restored, the perfect place of peace. But this time, no serpent. This time, no unruly children. No willingness to leave the comfort and safety of the hands of the Father. Peace and eternal life. Glory and honor. The gifts of the one who follows Christ. There's a second type of person you must see today. Look at verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The second person is the person who is self-seeking and denies the truth in order to obey unrighteousness. There's another person mentioned. This is the person that has denied faith in Christ. The person who is walking happily along the road to hell. Paul describes that person in three ways. That person is self-seeking. This is the opposite of what we are commanded to do in the first and second greatest commandments, right? This is why it's so self-seeking is so important. The first and second great command says what? Seek after the Lord first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Seek the Lord, not self. The second great command says what? Seek self? No, it says love your neighbor as yourself. We cannot be self-seeking and inherit eternal life because we cannot keep the most base and simple commands of loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself if we cannot get over ourselves. The Greek word here for self-seeking describes a contentious person. This is someone who seeks his own will at any cost. He thinks, of, he thinks of himself first, last, and in between. And honestly, and this is important to see because you might have these characteristics in you. If you have a tendency to be a self-seeking person, he sees people as pawns and not as image bearers. You need to really judge yourself here, guys, because as, as a person who is moderately self-seeking, that's me, I find myself all the time having to fight this idea of establishing or assigning worth to someone based on what they can do for me, based on how they can help me, based on what I can get out of them. And I don't do it intentionally. It doesn't come intentionally. It comes out of the very nature of my sin. <coughs> the contentious person who thinks of himself first, last, and in between, and he looks at other people as, not as image bearers, but as a way to the next step, as a means to an end. Sounds honestly like he's speaking specifically about today's politicians, maybe every year's politicians, but today's politicians. But honestly, it's not too far from pastors and regular church people also. If I think if Jesus were going to rewrite some of the Bible to make it sound more modern, he would probably say something like, it's easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than a politician to receive eternal life. Because this is what he's talking to the contentious person, the person who uses, the person who uses to get his way. The man wrapped up in his own personal crime, his own personal pleasure. He seeks pleasure, he seeks desire, and personal fulfillment at any cost. Or at least as long as the cost doesn't affect him. 
Paul said to Timothy, uh, he said this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, <coughs> rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. What was the first trait that Paul warned Timothy about? Lovers of self. But friends, every trait that I just mentioned really goes to describe this self-seeking, contentious person. The first way this person is described is as self-seeking. There's another way. He does not obey truth. This person does not obey truth. In our context, it is to, the, it is to resist, literally reject the truth of the existence of God. Remember, we've already discussed this extensively in chapter 1, that they have denied the fact that God exists. They have denied the creator and have worshipped the creation. That which can be clearly seen through the world, through nature, through creation. But we have seen, we've seen how this extends to rejecting Jesus as God and Jesus as the only God. And I think it also extends to people who reject other foundational truth in Scripture. This person not only does not use Scripture as a guide for life, but does not see it as important at all. He does not obey truth. Does not even consider that there is an absolute truth. Verse 9, the third qualification of this person who is on the road to hell, he does evil. This person loves and promotes the sins of Romans 29, 1, 29-31. And Paul describes more of what this person is like later in Romans 3. This person is not just stopping by the evil path. He didn't just get caught up on accident. This person has carved his name on every dead tree along the way. He has planted signs up telling of his great lore. Telling all of his story. Billboards letting know, letting people know what he did along the path. He is caught up in and glories in doing unrighteous deeds. What will be the result for this person? There will be wrath and fury. Look at verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human, or every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. There are four things Paul describes here, and they are all grouped into two for a reason. First, it is wrath and anger. These both refer to God's hatred and opposition to evil. These refer directly to God's feelings toward and response to sin. The second group refers to what the sinful person receives, and that is tribulation and distress. These words are commonly used in Scripture to refer to the suffering of the wicked in the life to come. And, and Psalm 1-6 sort of lays it out for us very clearly. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked will perish. This is everlasting damnation, everlasting wrath, everlasting separation from the love of God, and everlasting torment by the wrath of God. There are two paths, friends. Your works are not determined the path in the way that Christ works, work did. But our works do verify which path we are actually on. Your works do not determine which path you're on, but they do verify which path you're on. 
So what do we do? What do we do? How do we respond to this notice of judgment, to this fact that there are objectively two paths down this road, one that leads to life and one that leads to death? I'm being completely serious when I say this, and I'm saying it with as much urgency and with as much care as I can. We better make sure, friends, that we have a clear grasp of the reality of heaven and hell. We better make sure that we have a clear grasp of the reality that it exists, of, of its truth, of heaven and hell. I think we also should make sure that our friends and family members and loved ones do also. And most importantly, we need to trust Jesus to save us and trust Jesus to save others. Your works matter. Your works matter. But only because if you are in Christ, it is a clear definition clear proof if you are in Christ that Christ is in you. It is a clear proof the man who does well in seeking good, who seeks the glory of God, the honor of God, immortality that's only found in God, it's clear proof that Christ is in him. Friends, may I tell you something? And I'm as guilty of it as you are. Maybe more so. There has to be more to this life. There has to be more to this life than living for ourselves. There has to be more to this life than just fulfilling these little personal needs that help us get by. No matter what we feel them, there has to be more to this life than killing time. Friends, when we, when we seek after self, we fill ourselves with such things that erase Christ-centered joy. It erases Christ-centered joy because it leaves no room for Christ-centered work. There has to be more than just killing time. There has to be more than just getting it to tomorrow. My prayer for us is that more than anything, our lives would be modeled by living for Christ today. And then when tomorrow comes, that day. And the next day comes, that day. Friends, Christianity is just this. It's simply this. After we receive, it is this simple. After we receive Christ, it is, it is just this, compounding days of walking in the Spirit of God. That's all it is. It's not getting to where you want to be tomorrow. It's being who you're called to be today. Just compounding days of good works. Doing it today, and then tomorrow, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next. And before you know it, what you find is a person who is more and more like Jesus. Who has been made more and more in the image of the Son of God.
Christianity is not some unreachable, sanctification is not some unreachable, some unattainable goal. It's just committing today to living like Christ, leaving the troubles of tomorrow to itself. But then when you wake up tomorrow, since it is today, at that point, living that day for Christ. We pray with God, please help us to take those new mercies, that new grace that we get every morning, and start living each day, one day at a time, for you. Lord, it is a climb. It is a climb. But it is worth it. It's worth the bruises. It's worth the scrapes. It's worth the ridicule. It's worth the sacrifice because in the end what we find is glory and honor and peace and eternal life. Lord, thank you. We praise you. We ask that you make us more like your son. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.